Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Novation. Welcome to 2023. It's so good to be with you. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Kristen, and I am part of the leadership team here at Novation. And our lead pastor, Scott Applegate, and his wife, Janelle, have been given the gift of a little bit of time to spend time with family, seek God for his vision for us as a church family, and what God wants to do in and through our church in 2023. So Scott is not here with us today. I'm going to be with you both today and next week. And then um, Scott and Janelle will be back to lead, lead the charge. So I'm so glad to be with you. If you have been with Novation for a while, then you know that in Easter of 2022, we kicked off a journey of working our way through the Bible. We started in the book of Genesis, and we spent the majority of 2022 in the Old Testament, looking at important events, characters, themes, and just really growing in our understanding of this story of Israel and what it means for us today. And now we're in the New Testament, everybody. (laughs) Yes, it's so exciting. We made it. We have been reading through the scripture through a Bible reading plan through the YouVersion Bible app, and we're also in the New Testament in our reading plan, um, and I'm really excited. We are going to spend from now until this Easter working our way through the Gospel of John specifically. Today and next week, I'm jumping around to some of the other Gospels, but for the most part, we are going to be just spending the next like three months really looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus and taking what we learned about the story of Israel in the Old Testament and just seeing how it opens up uh, just a whole new way of understanding Jesus and his ministry and even our lives today. So that's where we're headed um, as we enter this new year. Before we dive in today, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist, and we are going to look at his life, and we are going to talk about the reality of doubt. That's part of a human experience. I'm sure You have had moments of doubt, and I know I have as well. And through the life of John, we are going to examine the reality of doubt. Uh, But before we do that, will you take a minute and just pray with me? God, thank you so much for Novation Church. Thank you for just the lives in this room and the way that you have brought us together um, to do life together, to worship you together, and just to experience your goodness and your grace God, today as we open your word and as we look at the life of John the Baptist and as we talk about the reality of doubt, I just ask that you would still our hearts and quiet our minds, that we would be open to what you want to do in each one of us, the ways that you want to encourage us and remind us of your goodness. God, I pray that I would get out of the way and allow you to be the teacher In each one of us, we honor you, we praise you this morning. Amen. All right, well, let's jump in. I want to begin by kind of giving you an overview of who John the Baptist was and why he was important. He was a really unique and important figure. And because he was a unique and important figure, you won't be surprised to learn that he has a pretty unique birth story. John the Baptist was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth were from the priestly line of Aaron. So Zechariah, his job was a priest. He worked in the temple. And one day he was in the temple serving, burning incense, and an angel of the Lord came to him and said, hey, 
I got a message for you. You're going to have a baby. And this was shocking news to Zechariah because Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. They were getting along in age and Elizabeth had never been able to have children. She was barren. So I want to read to you out of uh, Luke chapter one. This is verse 13 to 17. These are the words that the angel Gabriel spoke to Zechariah when he came to him in the temple. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that last sentence that the angel spoke to Zechariah was actually referencing a prophecy about John the Baptist from the Old Testament, from the book of Malachi, it's chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. So the angel's telling Zechariah, who would have been familiar with these prophecies, this baby that's going to be born to you, he's the one. He's the one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, Zechariah, understandably, was like, what? This can't be. My wife is old. We haven't been able to have kids. And so the angel tells Zechariah, a sign to you will be that you're not going to be able to speak until what I told you has come to pass. So imagine the scene, Zechariah leaves the temple, the people are waiting for him, and he's been in there a long time, and it's clear to them when he comes out that he's had some sort of a vision. He can't speak, and he presumably can't hear, because they're gesturing to him, trying to figure out what has happened. So Zechariah goes home to his wife, Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and while Elizabeth is pregnant, if you remember the story of Jesus's miraculous birth, the same angel actually visited Mary the mother of Jesus, to let her know, hey, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And we find out that Mary and Elizabeth were relatives. They knew each other. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth while they are both pregnant. And I point this out to you because I think it's important for us to notice that their families, John's family and Jesus's family, they were connected. They knew each other. Very likely, John and Jesus grew up around each other, right? So eventually, Mary or Elizabeth goes into labor and gives birth to this baby boy, and they name the baby boy John. And as soon as that happens, Zechariah can speak again. And he speaks this prophecy over his newborn son. And it's actually quite lengthy. I want to read to you just one sentence of the prophecy of Zechariah. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. I point this out to you because, again, this is a reference to an Old Testament prophecy out of the book of Malachi. This is Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 1. So Zechariah understands, and he's prophetically applying this Old Testament prophecy to this new little tiny baby boy, that he was going to prepare the way for the Lord. So John the Baptist grows up. We don't know a lot about his life as a young child. The next time we see him, he's entering into his own ministry. And he played a really pivotal role between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
John the Baptist was the prophet that all the other prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to. He was giving a vi- given a very unique calling to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, to call them to repentance, and to announce that the kingdom of God was near. So I want to read to you, this is uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. It gives us a really good just kind of summary and overview of John's ministry. So we're going to read that together. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Again, this is another Old Testament prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And the author is telling us, like, I want you to be clear. John is the one that was prophesied about. The verse goes on. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So we have this picture of this man, John, who's pretty eccentric. He's living in the wilderness. He's eating bugs and beehives and wearing weird clothes. He was not a weak man. John's message was bold. He was not afraid to call out the powers at play, both the religious powers and the political powers. So it shouldn't surprise us that John ends up in prison. He's been doing ministry. He's been baptizing people for repentance. He's been calling out sin. He's been calling out the religious leaders. He goes toe-to-toe with them and ends up in prison. I want to read to you why John is in prison, because I think understanding the setting and understanding where John is at and what has happened to him is really going to help us as we take a close look at his moment of doubt. This is out of the uh, book of Mark that I'm going to read to you. This is, a, this is what happened. This is why John is in prison. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Okay, I'm going to pause there for just a second. Okay, Herod that speak, that's being spoken of in this verse, it's not the same Herod that you might remember from the story of Jesus' birth. Herod the Great was in power when Jesus was born, and he's the one who ordered the murder of all the baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. This Herod is that Herod's son. And Herod the Great had four significant sons, and each of these four sons ruled a portion of Palestine. So Herod Antipas, who's being spoken of in these verses in Mark, he ruled one portion of Palestine. And his half-brother Philip ruled another portion of Palestine. And there was all this like political power grab and scandal going on, and Herod Antipas has an affair with his brother Philip's wife and convinces her to leave Philip, and marry him. So that's what's going on. Let's jump back into the story. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, that's the wife, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Okay, so 
The wife, Herodias, convinces her husband, her second husband, her brother-in-law, to throw John in prison because she's tired of John telling her husband that what he did was wrong. Okay, so that's the setting. So John is now in prison. Jesus is doing ministry. John, remember, John knows Jesus. We're going to talk next week about um, the baptism of Jesus. But John was the one who actually baptized Jesus. He witnessed the anointing of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism. He heard the voice of the Father proclaim about Jesus, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. There's other accounts in the Gospels where John actually points out Jesus to other people and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So remember, as we jump into John's doubt, John knew Jesus personally. He knew him. He had witnessed the Spirit's anointing. And yet still, we see this moment of doubt. We're going to spend the rest of our time together in Matthew chapter 11. I want to read to you verses 2 and 3. John's in prison, and here's what happens. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one? There was something about what John was hearing about Jesus that caused him to ask this question. Now remember, a Roman prison was no joke. Like, they didn't take care of you in prison. So you had to have people, friends, family, that would come and feed you and care for you. So John's followers, they were coming to care for John, and they're telling John about what's happening outside of prison. They're telling John about Jesus and his growing ministry. Now, here's the thing. I love the Bible. Because if this was just like a good Christian story, to give us some moral instruction, then what would you expect John to ask Jesus? Maybe, how can I pray for you? Like, what are your prayer requests? Can I partner in your ministry, right? Like, that'd be the good Christian story. But this is a real story, a real account of a real man struggling with real doubt. And so that's not what he asks. What he asks is, are you the one? Are you the one, or should we look for someone else? That begs the question, why did John doubt? What caused him, when he heard about Jesus and what he was doing, what caused him to doubt? To answer this, I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to read to you a sample of John's preaching. This is what John had to say specifically to the religious leaders. This is Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 to 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. In other words, like, we're, we're the Jewish people. We're the chosen ones. We're good. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one, are you the one? Comes one who is more powerful than I 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Intense, right? It's pretty intense. That was an intense message from an intense man. Now remember, John grew up steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. He was a Jewish man who grew up in Jewish culture with Jewish thinking and Jewish teaching. And because of that, he had a very specific idea of what it would look like when God entered into human history to rescue his people, to bring judgment, right? To to set up his kingdom. John had very clear expectations of what that would look like. And Jesus comes on the scene and he doesn't fit the paradigm. So I think the first reason that John begins to doubt and begins to ask, are you the one? Are you the one that I'm waiting for? Is because Jesus did not conform to John's expectations. How many people know that unmet expectations almost always lead us to disappointment, disillusionment, and doubt, right? How many people have had relational conflict because of unmet expectations? I sure have. Let me tell you a story. (laughs) This is a good one, you guys. This is a good one. My husband, Joel, and I, (laughs) my poor husband. Yeah, this is him not meeting expectations. That's where we're headed. So we've been married almost 20 years, but our first year of marriage, our first Easter together, goes down as our first big fight. It's, it's like family lore. Because here's the thing, I grew up in a family that celebrates really big. Everything is a big deal. Birthdays, holidays, accomplishments, we make a big deal out of everything in my family. So our first Easter together, about a week before Easter, I start curating a beautiful Easter basket for my husband, his favorite candy, a chocolate bunny, cute little gifts, and I've been working on this. And then the night before Easter, he's like, hey, I, uh, I planned something with the guys tonight. I'm going out. And I'm already kind of ticked off because I thought we were going to decorate Easter eggs, right? So I'm already not thrilled, but he goes to his guy's night and I set up his Easter basket. I get it all put together and I put it on the kitchen table and then I go to bed. He's still not home. It's getting late. So I go ahead and go to bed. Well, Joel comes home from guy's night, comes in the house, sees the lovingly curated Easter basket and is like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, uh-oh. It's now like 1 a.m. There's no stores open except for King Super's. So he heads to King Supers to hope that there's some leftover Easter stuff to put together a basket. But of course there's not. There's no chocolate bunnies. There's those weird marshmallow things that nobody likes, but no chocolate bunnies, no baskets. So he buys like this leftover bag of candy and some dying Easter lilies. And he brings them home and he sets them on the table next to my lovingly curated Easter basket. I wake up the next morning and we go upstairs and he's just kind of walking nervously next to me. And I look at the table and I look at him and let me tell you, biggest fight of first year of marriage plays out. The next year I had an excellent Easter basket, but that first year, (laughs) 
it, it was a disappointment. And it was all because of my expectation. Joel grew up in a different kind of family. They had different traditions. He didn't know that I was expecting this lovely curated Easter basket, and I didn't know that he didn't know, right? Like, you can relate, right? Unmet expectations lead to doubt and to disappointment. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing happening here. John had an expectation of what it was going to look like when the Messiah came on the scene. He expected judgment of the religious leaders. He expected overthrowing of political power. And instead, Jesus comes healing and inviting the rejects and the outcasts to a seat at the table. And John goes, wait, are you the one? Are you the one or should we look for someone else? Because Jesus didn't conform to John's expectations. The second reason that I think John begins to doubt in this moment is because Jesus didn't intervene in John's circumstances. If we go back to that verse out of Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, we're just going to slow way down and look at this first couple of words. It says, when John, who was in prison, he was in prison. Jesus is out there doing ministry. John was the forerunner, the one who announced the coming Messiah and the kingdom that was to come. And John's in prison and Jesus is out there. And I understand, right? Like John was like, wait a minute. Are you the one? I'm in prison. You're out there. Are you the one? Because how many know that hardship, unexpected suffering, it has a way of revealing what's in our hearts. Sometimes we have expectations that we're not even aware of, right? Until things go wrong, until we find ourselves in a place that we never would have chosen to be. And then we realize, oh, I expected something different. I had a different story in my mind, which makes me ask, was John's hope in Jesus? And I think in one sense, absolutely, right? Like he announced the coming of the Messiah. He was waiting on, believing in, and hoping for Jesus. But in another sense, and I can so relate to this, was there a little bit of John that was maybe putting his hope in what he expected Jesus to do and who he expected Jesus to be? And I think the answer is probably yes. I know in my own life, the answer is sometimes yes. My hope is in what I hope Jesus will do in me or for me, and sometimes not in who he is in and of himself. So how does Jesus respond? John has this moment of doubt. He sends his followers to ask him, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus responds. And here's what we don't see. Jesus does not get mad. He doesn't condemn or rebuke John. In fact, if you keep reading this chapter, we're not going to cover it today, but if you were to keep reading, after Jesus answers John's followers, he praises John to the crowd. He says there's nobody like John. He praises John. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't rebuke him. And when we have our moments of doubt, we can expect Jesus to treat us in the same way. Let's look at what Jesus says in response to the question, are you the one? Jesus replied, this is Matthew 11, verse 4 and 5, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, 
Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the, to the poor. That's six statements that Jesus makes here. And what's really interesting is if you were to read the 11 chapters leading up to this, almost every one of those statements has a story connected to it where Jesus did one of these things in the life of somebody we read about in the Gospels. Another really interesting thing about this statement that Jesus makes, these six phrases that he uses, all six of these phrases were lifted out of the prophet Isaiah. They come from four different prophecies in Isaiah. And every one of these four prophecies are messianic prophecies about the great day, the day that the Messiah would come. And John would have been really familiar with this. He knew the scriptures. He knew the prophets. So when Jesus is saying these things, John would have been like, tick, 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 tick. Yeah, okay. I know exactly where those, those phrases you're saying come from. And I know who and what they were referring to. So what Jesus is saying to John, I think, in this response is, you're not wrong, John. You didn't get it wrong. I am the one. It just doesn't look like you were expecting it to look. So Jesus's response, first thing that he's doing, he is inviting John into a new story. John had a narrative in his own mind of how this was all going to play out and what it was all going to look like. And when Jesus didn't look like what he was expecting, John started to doubt and started to question. And Jesus is saying like, hey, come into my story. Enter into my story. And man, how often are we guilty of this? I know I'm guilty of this, of treating Jesus more like a genie in a bottle where we have our own idea. We're like, you know what? I have a plan. I know how my life should go. I know what the story should be. And Jesus, if you could just make things line up the way that I want them to line up, if you could just work these ultimate resolutions out in my life, I've got a plan. And Jesus, if you could just come into my story, that would be great. But Jesus doesn't conform to our story. He invites us to step into his story, which is so much better, even when we don't see it, even when it's something we would never have picked for ourselves, And that's what Jesus is inviting John to here. You know, for years, my husband Joel and I prayed that God would open the door for us to go and live and work and do ministry overseas. We really wanted the opportunity to move to Scotland. We have a deep love for that country and for those people. And we pursued that with everything that we had. Joel applied for every job that he was even a little bit qualified for. We made connections with people there. We, we gave everything that we could give towards moving our family overseas for a period of time. And we felt like God really put that on our heart. It was something that we both desired, that we prayed about. Our intentions and our reason for wanting to go were God-honoring. But for some reason, that wasn't our story. I don't know why. I don't know why God hasn't answered your prayers or made what you were dreaming of come into reality. And to be honest with you, that's like kind of a space in my heart where there's a little bit of pain and like a little bit of regret that we have never had the opportunity to do that. But anytime we come to that place where it's like, I had an idea about my life. I had something that I was praying for and hoping for. 
When it doesn't come to pass, we're faced with the question, am I going to trust Jesus? Am I going to step into his story? Even when I don't understand why things are happening the way that they are. And that's what Jesus is inviting John to. The second thing that Jesus does, his answer to John was incomplete. He gave him that summary, those six things that he was busy doing that made up his ministry. And then Jesus says one more sentence to John, one more thing. This is Matthew 11, verse 6. He says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, some translations, if you read that verse, it says, Blessed are those who are not offended by me. And that word, stumble or offend, the Greek word, I'll probably say this wrong, but the Greek word is scandalizio. And if you listen, you can hear our English word, scandalize, right? There is a correlation between our definition, our English definition of scandalize, and this Greek word here. And this makes perfect sense to me, right? How often are we offended, scandalized even, when our prayers are not answered, when Jesus doesn't do what we were expecting him to do or believing him to do. And what Jesus says to John is, don't let this trip you up. I am the one. I am the one. Things have not gone off the rails because they're not going the way that you thought they would or in the timing that you thought things would happen. I've got everything under control. Don't let this trip you up. Now, if you were to go on and read the rest of John's story, John dies in prison. He's beheaded by Herod. John dies. Jesus, his ministry continues to grow, and he continues to face growing opposition from the religious leaders until eventually Jesus is arrested, he's beaten, he's crucified, he's murdered on the cross. Now, this might look like failure. We have a dead prophet and a dead Messiah. And if your expectation was that Jesus was going to solve all of your problems or answer all of your prayers or make all of your dreams come true, then a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. But here's the thing. Jesus did not come to solve all of our problems or to answer all of our prayers. And I do not want to minimize the pain that comes with unanswered prayers. I in no way want to minimize that. And Jesus's kindness and grace to John in his moment of doubt is the same that's offered to us when we come to those moments where our prayers haven't been answered, when our expectations haven't been met. But the truth is that Jesus came to do so much more. Jesus came to conquer evil and sin and death. And the way that he did that was by uniting himself to us, to our brokenness. He bore the weight of our shattered expectations. He bore the consequences of our sin. And he submitted himself completely to evil and to sin and to death. And in doing so, he exhausted evil, sin, and death of its power. So what looked like a failure, the dead Messiah in the tomb that might have looked like failure actually ushered in 
ultimate victory in the resurrection. Because God's love and commitment to us was so great that he refused to allow sin, evil, death, Satan to have the final say. He said no. The cross was God's resounding no to allowing evil to have the final say in your life and in my life, in our world, in all of human history. The cross is the ultimate victory. The resurrection gives us our ultimate confidence that Jesus is the one. John didn't get it wrong. Jesus is the one. And we can put all of our hope and our trust in him even when our prayers go unanswered, even when life doesn't turn out the way that we thought that it would or the way that we thought that it should. So I think as we're heading into this new year, to 2023, like Christy was sharing at the beginning of worship, I don't know what 2023 holds for me, for you, for any of us. But the invitation is for us to put our hope in the risen Jesus, not in who we hope he is or will be, or not in what we hope he will do in our life, but in who he actually is and in what he has already done for us, for you and for me, his life, his death, his resurrection. It was on our behalf and we can walk in peace and in confidence regardless of our circumstances when we know the one true risen Lord. So I think the best way for us to begin 2023 together and to finish the message and our time together today is by taking communion. We have communion tables set up here at the front and there's also two smaller tables at the back. In just a minute, you can make your way to whatever table is most convenient for you. I want you to take the elements, the juice and the bread, and then I want to give you a couple of options. Today, you might need to spend a little bit of individual time with Jesus, laying before him areas of doubt in your own heart. Maybe there's an unmet expectation or an unanswered prayer that's been causing you to ask, are you the one? Do you love me? Are you, are you real? This is a moment for you maybe individually with Jesus to lay those doubts before him. I also want to invite you, if you are here with your family, with a spouse, with a friend, if your home group is in this room, get your communion elements and find your people. And maybe take a step of faith and be a little bit vulnerable and take a minute to share with somebody else that area of doubt, that thing that's making you ask, are you the one? Let's share with each other and then let's build each other's faith up when we will come back together as a church family and we'll take the communion elements and we will declare our faith in the true, real, risen Lord. Not in who we hope he is, but who he actually is and what he's actually done. So as we worship, please go ahead and make your way to the communion stations and then we'll come back together in a few moments. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound 
wonderful message and that reminder of who Jesus is and what he means in our lives. And I can't think of a better way to reflect on that than taking communion together as a church family and uh, remembering who Jesus is and and this act of remembrance uh, together. So the night that Jesus was betrayed, we recall that he was with his disciples who must have been filled with doubt when their Messiah is telling them, their teacher is telling them, I'm going to go die. And yet we see the wonderful, amazing story of that uh, in history. And so that night, uh, Jesus had a meal with his disciples, and he sat down and he broke the bread and said, this is my body that I is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread. After Jesus broke the bread, he took a cup of wine and he lifted it to heaven and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. This seals the new covenant of God with his people. Let's take the wine and remember the sacrifice of all sacrifices, Jesus. God, as we are gathered here today and stepping into a new year, may we never forget who Jesus truly is. And may we conform ourselves into him rather than expecting him to conform to us. And God, as our church family goes about today in their daily lives, may you bless them and keep them, make your face shine upon them, give them peace. We ask for your abundant mercy on us each and every day. We thank you for the amazing gift of Jesus and what he did in our lives. So, Father, thank you for today. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.